0: We are now at the conclusion of our three-part study of the book of Philemon, bringing us to examine verses 17 to 25 during tonight's lesson. Over our past two gatherings, we have considered two of the three major sections contained within this New Testament letter. During our first lesson, covering verses 1 to 3, we focused primarily on the key background information associated with the book of Philemon. In doing so, we observed that the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Philemon, And he wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment, which took place at some point between 60 and 62 AD. We found that the theme of the book of Philemon can be summarized as God's forgiveness produces Christian forgiveness. And we also stated that the main purpose for the book of Philemon is to encounter God's manual for how Christians are to model forgiveness towards other people. Furthermore, we also noted during our first lesson that the original recipients of this letter were Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church that met in Philemon's house. Verses 1 to 3 revealed to us that Paul had a close relationship with these believers, and when we compare the book of Philemon to the rest of what we find contained in the New Testament, we find the book of Philemon to be by far the most intimately written letter. In keeping with the original meaning of Philemon's name, you'll recall from that lesson that Philemon literally means affectionate. We chose to label the contents of verses 1 to 3 as follows. The affectionate forward. Verses 1 to 3 of the book of Philemon summarized under the central heading of the affectionate forward. And that brought us to our second study that we were able to do last week. During that study, we surveyed the second major section contained within the book of Philemon. In doing so, we were able to summarize the totality of that section, spanning from verse 4 to verse 16, as the appeal for forgiveness. Second heading, corresponding to the second major section of Philemon, summarized as the appeal for forgiveness and from those verses, verses 4-16 to the Apostle Paul systematically developed the cornerstone and the contents of his appeal for Philemon to extend forgiveness to Onesimus and in the final analysis the assumption undergirding Paul's appeal is that forgiveness and reconciliation will take place between Philemon and Onesimus why would Paul have that expectation well it's because Philemon and Onesimus were both partakers in Christ they were co-heirs in Christ by the sovereign grace of God Philemon and Onesimus are equal partakers of the holy spirit and as such both of those men have the ability to make amends to their relationship and wash all past wrongs in the blood of Jesus Christ Verses 4-16 of Philemon also reiterates Scripture's overarching expectations for Christian forgiveness. Verses 4-16 to 16 also reiterates Scripture's overarching expectations for Christian forgiveness. And what are those expectations? Well, to summarize briefly, when any person confesses their sin against another person and asks for their forgiveness, then the offended party must grant Forgiveness to them. We say that again. When any person confesses their sin against another person and asks them for forgiveness, then that offended party must grant them with forgiveness. When Christians fail to extend forgiveness to a repentant brother or sister, they likewise fail to model the forgiveness that they have first received from the triune God. And at its core... A lifestyle pattern of unforgiveness is evidence that a person is likely not born again. You see, a person is never more like God than when extending forgiveness towards those who have sought reconciliation. And conversely, a person is never less like God than when failing to extend forgiveness towards those who have earnestly asked for it. The Apostle Paul knew and championed these truths throughout the duration of his apostolic ministry. And what we find in the closing verses of Philemon is certainly no exception to the norm. In verses 17 to 25, which is what we're going to be considering here in our time together tonight, Paul is going to take his appeal for forgiveness and he's going to provide several practical ways in which he expects the appeal to be applied by Philemon in his relationship. With Onesimus. As such, the central heading of verses 17 to 25 will be titled in this way The Application of Forgiveness. Verses 17 to 25 summarized under the central heading of The Application of Forgiveness. In keeping with the pattern we established during our previous lessons, let's consider the totality of the book of Philemon as a whole. Before we narrow our attention to what Paul has to say in these final verses, spanning from verse 17 to 25, I'll be reading this letter from the New American Standard Bible. You follow along with me in your copy of the Word of God as I read, beginning in verse 1 of Philemon. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy our brother... "...to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints." And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake... I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel." But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, Accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Pathras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this evening. Excluding the closing remarks found in verses 23 to 25, Paul uses this section of Philemon to provide three foundational elements of Christian forgiveness. Three foundational elements of Christian forgiveness as developed from verse 17 to verse 22 of Philemon. While it is true that these are not the only elements that Scripture conveys about Christian forgiveness... It is likewise true that Christian forgiveness will never be divorced from the three elements that Paul expounds in this passage. The first element of Christian forgiveness that we can extract from this portion of the letter is found in verse 17. As you'll notice in your handouts, I've summarized this particular element as Christian forgiveness requires reconciliation. First element of Christian forgiveness forgiveness found in verse 17, summarized as Christian forgiveness requires reconciliation. Notice verse 17 again with me in your Bibles. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, if then, Philemon, you regard me a partner, accept Onesimus as you would me. Verse 17 is a transitional verse between Paul's appeal for Philemon to forgive Onesimus and Paul's explanation of how he expects Philemon to model forgiveness toward his estranged slave. The words partner and accept are the key words for accurately understanding what Paul is communicating at this point in his letter. The Greek word that Paul uses for partner is derived from the same root that we use to translate fellowship or community. During our exegesis of the next few verses, we're going to take some time to show why that's significant, but just here in the meantime... If we were to get to the heart of what Paul is saying, I think we could paraphrase verse 17 in this way. Remember, thinking about this idea of the word partner coming from the same root as fellowship or community. I think we could rightly get to the heart of what Paul is saying by paraphrasing it in maybe these ways. Philemon, if you regard me as a like-minded brother... Philemon, if you regard me as a true partner in gospel ministry, Philemon, if you regard me as a fellow co-worker and friend of the faith, then here is what I want you to do. Let me set the stage for how I want you to act in light of our koinonia, in light of our community, in light of our fellowship as brothers in Christ. Here's what I want you to do, Philemon. I want you to accept omniscience as you would accept me. The Greek term that Paul uses for accept literally means to receive into one's home. It's a word that depicts an individual opening themselves up to another at the most intimate and personal level. Several commentators agree that there's likely at least two primary reasons for why Paul chose to use this word in verse 17. The Greek term used for accept. First reason, it's likely that Paul's use of the Greek term for accept is to signify Philemon's responsibility to welcome Onesimus into his local church. At the time this letter was written, Onesimus would be returning to Philemon not only as his slave, but also as his brother in Christ. As such, Philemon and all of the members of his local church would then be biblically obligated to welcome Onesimus into their community of faith. We're going to touch on that idea a little bit more here as we get into verses 20 to 22, so keep that thought in the back of your mind. But for now, I just want to point out that this instruction could only be obeyed if true reconciliation transpired between Philemon and Onesimus. There's no way that this instruction could be obeyed by either Philemon on the one hand in his church, and Onesimus on the other hand, if true reconciliation doesn't take place. Why do I say that? Well, very practically speaking, there would have been no possible way for Philemon and Onesimus to peacefully coexist in a home church setting without them experiencing an authentic transformation in their relationship. You see, engaging in biblical and heartfelt reconciliation, biblically informed reconciliation, that ultimately will produce a restored relationship. Put yourself in the shoes of these first century Christians, they meet in a home church. These people did life together. They knew each other at the most intimate and personal level. And Paul's saying, I want you to receive this slave that ran away from you back into your home. I want you to accept him as you would me. There's just no possible way that's going to happen if true reconciliation doesn't take place. They'll never be able to coexist with one another in the same route. That brings us to the second likely reason for Paul's usage of the Greek term. Except, Second key reason that most commentators acknowledge for Paul using this particular term, it's very likely that Paul had used this term to emphasize his desire for Philemon to treat Onesimus with the same level of affection that he would display toward the Apostle Paul. Since Onesimus is born the fruit of repentance, and since uh, since Philemon is in the position to extend forgiveness to Onesimus, Paul is stressing the need for these men to resume their relationship without self-imposed tension. Stated differently, Paul is telling Philemon that his treatment and interaction with Onesimus should reflect the same degree of warmth that he would show to the Apostle Paul. And the main takeaway from this observation is that Christian forgiveness does not leave a relationship cold and tense. Very important for us to take away from this second major point of observation. Christian forgiveness does not leave a relationship cold and tense. On the contrary, whereas forgiveness brings about the restoration of a relationship, reconciliation brings about the revival of a relationship. Did you catch that? Biblically informed forgiveness brings about the restoration of a relationship, and reconciliation brings about the revival of that relationship. You see, reconciliation, when done in accordance with Scripture and by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, reconciliation goes a step beyond forgiveness in that it requires the intentional cultivating of a revived and renewed relationship that has genuinely moved past the initial wrongdoing. True Christian forgiveness will in time produce authentic relationship rec- uh, respiration between estranged parties. If you've truly forgiven somebody, then you will have a renewed relationship, a revived relationship with the person who was formerly estranged to you. It's not enough to say, oh, I just I forgive you, but I want nothing to do with you. We're going to remain tense and cold towards one another. No. When you forgive somebody, you go from just the, the acknowledgement of forgiveness to the volitional act, the intentional pursuit of being reconciled to them. You want a revived relationship. You want a renewed and restored fellowship with them. Because you're presumably brothers and sisters in Christ. As we've last week, only believers can do this. Only work of God the Holy Spirit can cause any sinner to, To do what Paul is instructing Philemon to show towards Onesimus. It's verse 17. That is the principle of Christian forgiveness requires reconciliation. Now let's move on to 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. As we engage with those verses, we're now going to see the second element of forgiveness that Paul develops for us in this letter. Verses 18 and 19 summarized under this heading. Christian forgiveness requires humility. Christian forgiveness requires humility. Let's reread those verses together. Verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, But if Onesimus has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Now I promised you guys over the last two lessons that we're going to get into the weeds of some of the proposed theories as to what exactly Onesimus did to wrong Philemon. And as I studied for this lesson, I managed to come across three predominant theories that seek to explain how Onesimus wronged Philemon. It's interesting to know that each of those theories have to do with money, but each theory has a unique twist in light of what interpreters believe regarding the breaking of this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Three perspectives, three unique twists or explanations for how this relationship fell apart. You'll notice each of the theories recorded in your handouts for uh, later review. Let's look at theory number one. The first theory, as alluded to by the likes of John Gill in his commentary on the book Philemon, is that Onesimus carelessly accumulated a bunch of debt during his time working for Philemon. Proponents of this view speculate that since Onesimus was a slave, he would not have had enough money to pay off the debts that he had carelessly incurred over an extended period of time, presumably while he was working for Philemon. Therefore, upon coming to grips with the hopelessness of his situation, Onesimus would have ran away so as to desert all the debt that he had accumulated, and he would have stolen money from Philemon to help him in starting a new life in Rome. And of course, the consequence of that would have left Philemon with the bill, as it were. Philemon, according to proponents of this view would have had to pay off all the debt that Onesimus had incurred. That's theory number one, interesting theory. Theory number two, the second theory referenced by the likes of Douglas Moo, is that Onesimus didn't actually do anything wrong. This is a fascinating um, theory. I, I find it to be the least compelling of the three, but here's how proponents of this theory want to argue. They would say that there was likely really there, there was a dispute over money that occurred between Onesimus and Philemon. Don't really know the nature of that dispute, but somehow or other they have a dispute over money and Onesimus eventually just leaves Philemon, goes to Rome, and word begins to spread. And word begins to spread that Onesimus was the one who had wronged Philemon, whereas according to proponents of this view, might not have been as black and white as the word on the street. In fact, proponents of this view would say that this was kind of your typical he said, he said. There's no way of really knowing who was in the wrong here, says proponents of this view. So proponents of this view would say that Paul's writing style, just kind of the, the vagueness of his writing
1: style in Philemon, demonstrates that he's he's very careful not to
0: accuse Philemon of wrongdoing, but he's also not trying to excuse him from wrongdoing either. According to this view, Paul is more concerned with indicating what Philemon must do only if Onesimus has wronged him in any way. This is a hypothetical scenario. Philemon, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because I know you. But if you are in the wrong, you need to do this. Again, fascinating view. Don't think I'm necessarily convinced by it. And that takes us to the third major view that I was able to find in preparing for this lesson. View number three, theory number three, this is proposed by the likes of John MacArthur, is that Onesimus directly stole money from Philemon and ultimately, after doing so, fled to Rome. Those who share this view would note that Onesimus was likely a rebellious slave and an unconverted man that just grew tired of working for Philemon. We know how unbelievers can act. They're careless, reckless, don't like submitting to authority. They just get tired of working for somebody. Proponents of this third view would say something along those lines would have happened with Onesimus in terms of his relationship to Philemon. And seeing that Philemon was wealthy, says proponents of this third view, Onesimus would have stolen enough money to start a new life in Rome, and in doing so, they would say that Philemon was perfectly justified in seeing Onesimus as committing wrongdoing against him. In fact, proponents of this view, contrary to the view we just looked at, would say Paul, though being careful in how he crafts The letter of Philemon, Paul's being very intentional. Onesimus was in the wrong, he's coming back to you. Uh, Philemon, you need to forgive him and be reconciled when he gets back. Now, if we reflect on each of these three views, I think it's clear that the third view is most persuasive. Nevertheless, I I do want to say, just for you guys and for the sake of those who may be listening to the recording, that godly men, as I've just noted, Gil, Douglas Moo, John MacArthur, great interpreters, great minds, godly men, each take a a different view. They they lean in different ways here. So in interpretation issues like this, it's always best to make sure that we're not making it any bigger than it needs to be. It's fascinating to speculate on, but nevertheless, don't need to make a mountain out of a molehill Now, my conviction, in continuing from our examination of these three views, my conviction is that Paul's reason for employing a generic description in verses 18 and 19, and really broadly up to this point in his letter regarding the transgression that was committed by Onesimus against Philemon, I believe that, that, that vagueness or generic description is to prevent readers from getting caught in the drama of how omission is sinned against Philemon. I think the omission of some details is intentional by Paul. He knows that in our sinful nature, we love drama. And we can get caught up in the mudslinging sometimes when two brothers or sisters are having a disagreement or a conflict. So in light of that, I believe Paul wants to use these verses, verses 18 and 19 specifically, To devote maximal attention to the main principle he wants his initial readers and us by extension, those who would read this letter after Philemon and his church. There's a main principle he wants them to take away from this, regardless of the exact and precise details of the conflict. And here's the main principle I believe Paul wants us to consider. Notice how Paul lays it out for us at the end of verse 19. It's a parenthetical statement. He says, not to mention, Philemon, that you owe to me even your own self as well. It's a very subtle but very intentional statement being made by Paul. Regardless of the finer details associated with omniscient transgression against Philemon, the Apostle Paul wanted to remind Philemon and those in the church who would read this letter and us reading it some 2,000 years later That humility is inextricably linked to Christian forgiveness. You can't have true Christian forgiveness without humility. At the end of verse 19, Paul is providing the basis for why Philemon must receive Onesimus back with a humble and forgiving heart. He's reminding Philemon that his coming to saving faith and his growth into a Christian leader is a direct byproduct of how God used Paul in his life. He, he, he's saying, Philemon, now, don't, don't get too big for your riches here whenever you have to confront Onesimus. He's not the only one who owes a debt. In fact, you owe a much greater one. In God's providence, Paul was the instrument that God used to bring Philemon to save faith in Jesus Christ. In God's providence, Paul played a significant role in the discipleship and training up of Philemon for Christian leadership. And in God's providence, Paul was the one who eventually enabled Philemon. He eventually gave Philemon the opportunity to plant a church in his own home. Just as Onesimus owed Philemon a great debt for how he had wronged him, Philemon also owed Paul a great debt for all of the time, energy, service, and love he had personally received. Was Onesimus in the wrong and did he owe a great debt to Philemon? You better believe it. But was Philemon one who was debt-free? Not according to the Apostle Paul. Paul wants Philemon to see that he is equally as committed to the material and eternal welfare of Onesimus as he is to Philemon. So, as Philemon encounters Onesimus for the first time after their conflict, for the first time after their separation... Paul's saying, Philemon, you must always keep in mind where you came from. And you must be committed to maintaining the highest level of humility when you have the opportunity to face your newfound brother in Christ and your estranged slave for the first time. I love how John MacArthur provides his perspective on the main principle that Paul is trying to communicate to Philemon. Very compelling commentary here. I want to read this quote from you. Pay very attention to what MacArthur says. Very convicting to consider. Very compelling to consider. Here's a direct quote from MacArthur. Verse 18. In verse 18 MacArthur writes, Paul offered to make good on Onesimus' debt because he knew that Onesimus did not have the means to repay Philemon." Although he was in prison, Paul probably had the financial resources to pay Onesimus' debt, mainly from the support of churches he had planted. But in verse 19, Paul wants to remind Philemon that he owes Paul an even greater debt than Onesimus owed him. Onesimus owed Philemon a material debt. Philemon owed Paul a spiritual debt. Onesimus owed Philemon a temporal debt. Philemon owed Paul an eternal debt. Philemon had heard the gospel from Paul that ultimately led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, that is debt Philemon could never repay in this life. End quote. So up to this point in our lesson, we have seen how Christian forgiveness requires reconciliation. In conjunction with what we talked about in verse 17. We've observed how Christian forgiveness requires humility from verses 18 and 19. I want us now to take some time to evaluate how Christian forgiveness is rooted in Christian community. Christian forgiveness is rooted in Christian community as found by what Paul writes in verses 20 to 22. Let me read those verses again. Feel free to follow along in your copy of the Word of God as I do so. Paul writes, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. The element of Christian forgiveness that stems from verses 20 to 22 is a further elaboration of what Paul already said back in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul used the term partner to describe the relationship that he has with Philemon. And as we previously noted, the Greek word that Paul uses for partner comes from the same root that we use to translate fellowship and community. Paul uses this word back in 2 Corinthians 8.23 to speak of those who he ministered alongside, indicating that Paul's idea of partnership is not simply a superficial or shallow relationship. Paul's usage of this term is also consistent with how it's translated throughout the New Testament. If we look at the totality of how the New Testament uses this Greek term, partner, coming from the same root of community or fellowship, we find that biblically speaking, true partnership, true fellowship and true community all presuppose relationships that go beyond the surface level. Don't miss that. It's very different from how most Christian leaders in contemporary American evangelicalism speak. We speak of community just as gathering together under this kind of broad, esoteric umbrella of common faith in Jesus Christ. And though it is true, insofar that we have a common faith in Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But when Paul speaks of a partner in gospel ministry, true partnership, true fellowship, true community presupposes relationships that go beyond a surface or shallow or superficial level types of people that Paul regarded as partners. You may have heard a few of them. Timothy, Titus, Luke, Peter. Their partnership was not merely established on the basis of their compatible personalities, even though that certainly may have been the case. But their partnership also included... And ultimately, this is the most important aspect of their partnership. Their partnership included doctrinal and missional like-mindedness. They had doctrine and philosophies of ministry and outreach that were harmonious with one another, that were by and large in agreement with one another. Therefore, when viewed from the lens of Scripture True partnership requires like mindedness across doctrinal, missional, and relational lines. It's with this particular understanding of what Paul refers back to in verse 17 that enables us to have a proper framework for what he has to say to Philemon in verses 20 to 22. In verse 20, Paul prefaces his instruction about the interrelatedness between Christian forgiveness and community. By expressing his desires in a very creative way. Paul was a master communicator. When Paul appealed to Philemon, verse 20, Philemon, benefit me in the Lord. He uses a Greek term, benefit, that comes from the same root as Onesimus. Don't let this go unnoticed. Don't let this stone not be overturned. Paul is employing an intentional play on words to Philemon so that he might consider the importance of extending forgiveness to his runaway slave. What's Paul saying in effect? Philemon, I want you to be useful to me. Yeah, he's saying that. Philemon, I want you to be beneficial to me. Yeah, we could say that, but let me take it a step further for you in light of the word that you Philemon, I want you to be Onesimus to me. How's that for instruction coming from a close, personal friend and former mentor in the faith? Paul says, Philemon, the best way that you can benefit me and refresh my heart in the Lord is to model the very character that Onesimus now models. And how are you going to do that? You're going to model that character through forgiving him through being reconciled to him. You see, the same slave that stole from Philemon and deserted him is now to be viewed as an example for how Philemon is to treat him as a brother in Christ. My friends, this is the transformative power of the gospel. And because Philemon and Onesimus were possessors of the Holy Spirit... And because they were co heirs in Jesus Christ, Paul could confidently hold to the expectation that true forgiveness and true reconciliation would occur between these two men. We spoke about that moments ago. There is a confidence, there is an expectation undergirding this letter that these men are going to be reconciled. They are going to be restored in their master slave relationship and even enter into a new relationship, one as brothers in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 21. Philemon, I have confidence that you will not only obey what I have written to you, but because of the godly character I know that you possess, I have confidence that you're even going to exceed my loftiest expectations. Philemon, there is not a doubt in my mind that you will magnify the grace, mercy, and love of the triune God by modeling the very traits that I know you to model. You're going to forgive this. You are going to be reconciled to him because I know who you are. I've seen the work God's done in you and through you. I know that the Holy Spirit of God can facilitate and accomplish reconciliation through even the most estranged parties. This is going to happen. Wouldn't you love that to be said of you by Christ or by an apostle? To have that kind of confidence in your character through what he had seen in your life? Wouldn't you love for your spiritual mentors and role models of the faith today, whoever they may be, would you love to hear them express that level of confidence in your lifestyle pattern of personal godliness? And preaching to myself here just as much as I'm preaching to you tonight, we need to all soberly and honestly, after coming to terms with what Paul's saying here. We need to examine ourselves before the living God. And we need to ask ourselves if our current pattern of life would enable Christ or an apostle or those who know us best, who are our mentors in the faith, that they could say, I know you. I've seen your life. I have confidence you're going to model the forgiveness of that you're called to model towards those who have been estranged with you but have come to you for reconciliation, who have come to you for forgiveness. You're not going to keep them at arm's length. You're not going to say, hey, I forgive you, but I want nothing to do with you. No, you're going to have a revived and renewed relationship. The Spirit of God dwells in you just as as He dwells in that other person, and you're going to magnify God in how you reconcile We now come to verse 22 with those thoughts in mind. Verse 22. As we see once again, Paul wants to remind Philemon of the accountability structures that are in place to ensure that he is obedient to everything he has written to him up to this point in the letter. So, Paul does certainly express confidence that God will allow Philemon to model the level of forgiveness and the the kind of reconciliation that he's called to model, but Paul also wants to make sure that Philemon and his readers are aware that there's also some guardrails in place to make sure that my confidence is not ultimately in vain. In verse 22, let me just make a note of this first, Paul expresses confidence that God will use the prayers of Philemon's church members as a means of granting him release from prison. That's a historical point but a necessary observation to make nonetheless in light of what Paul writes in places like Philippians 2 verses 23 and 24 Paul clearly believed at this point in his Roman imprisonment, that first Roman imprisonment taking place between 60 and 62 AD, he believed he was going to get out of jail he believed he was going to be able to return to the ministry God had entrusted to him outside of the confines of a Roman prison cell in this context, Paul's expectation of getting out of jail, that we find the term that he uses for lodging very interesting. Notice that term lodging in verse 22. Prepare a lodging for me. The Greek term for lodging literally means guest room. What does that matter? What's the significance? Well, it's clear from this particular verse and this particular word that Paul, again, suddenly reminding his dear friend Philemon that after he gets released from prison, Paul's going to come and have a little visit at his home. He's saying, Paul, go ahead and get my favorite guest room ready, Philemon. I want want the one in the corner over there because when I get out of this jail cell, I'm coming to visit and I'm going to get to see firsthand if my confidence was justified or in vain. Isn't that something to consider? Not only is Paul writing this in order to say, hey, church, who I know is going to read this along with Philemon, I'm excited to cut out of prison. I believe God's going to answer your prayers, and I'm going to get to enjoy sweet fellowship and reunion with you. But also, uh, Philemon, I have confidence in you, brother. But I also know the depths of human depravity, even in believers. I know the struggle it can be to forgive and to reconcile. So get my guest room ready. I'm coming for a little visit. In other words, the members of Philemon's church were not the only ones who were going to hold Philemon accountable to forgive Onesimus and obey what Paul has written up to this point in the letter. Philemon's going to have to face the Apostle Paul. And, my friends, this is another important point of application that we need to take away as we consider the principle of Christian forgiveness being rooted in Christian community. You see, it's the spiritual duty and the biblical duty of the local church, especially those in leadership of the local church, to hold members and leaders accountable to obeying the Word of God, whether it's a layperson or a... A deacon or an elder or anything in between, I think that covers it all, elder, deacon, or layperson. Wherever you fall in that spectrum, you have a spiritual and a biblical obligation to hold the members in your local church accountable to modeling obedience to the Word of God. And under that umbrella of obedience to the Word of God biblical conflict resolution, forgiveness and reconciliation, all the things we've been talking about in this letter. You have an obligation biblically and spiritually to make sure that's being obeyed, whether it's a layperson we're talking about, and especially if it's a spiritual leader that we're talking about, being an elder or deacon. This is one of the key reasons why Christ implemented such a robust process of church discipline, In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. And this is why Paul echoed that same sentiment in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. Both of those passages we've referred to back in previous lessons. Without God-ordained measures or structures of accountability, there would be little means of restraining disobedience and unrepentant sin in the local church. Even when dealing with scenarios that require forgiveness and reconciliation to take place amongst estranged church members, it is our duty, my friends, in our Christian community of faith, it is our duty, our biblical and spiritual obligation to hold one another accountable. The church should never tolerate members who willfully reject attempts for forgiveness and reconciliation to take place. The local church should never be a context in which the members allow willful disregard and disobedience to the clear instruction contained in the Word of God. I want to make this clear before we move on. For you and for the listener, any unwillingness to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation with somebody who is actively seeking it out, is grounds for church discipline. I want to make sure that is crystal clear because typically when we think about discipline, we think of unbiblical divorces, extramarital affairs, um, holding to heretical doctrine, theft, some, you know, what we would consider a, a really bad or grievous sin, right? Incest, in the case of 1 Corinthians 5. Things that are grotesque sins, right? I think, Yeah, church discipline obviously pertains to that. Guys, even something as simple as being unwilling to receive a a estranged brother or sister in Christ back into your good graces. Any unwillingness to be reconciled with somebody who's actively seeking reconciliation with you. Something even as quote-unquote small as that, if they're not willing to follow that instruction as we've Been considering from God's word. Church discipline is what needs to happen. This is the teaching of Christ. This is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And you better believe that if Philemon would not have modeled the instruction that's given in this letter, church discipline would have been coming swiftly. We need to submit ourselves to this biblically rooted reality as we consider the book of Philemon in conjunction with the rest of sacred scripture. So we've now made our way through each of the three subheadings that have organized tonight's lesson. By way of review, again, verse 17, we saw how Christian forgiveness requires reconciliation. In verses 18 and 19, we observed how Christian forgiveness requires humility. In verses 20 to 22, we noted how Christian forgiveness is rooted in Christian community. As we prepare to transition into our time of group discussion, now I just want us to briefly survey each of the individuals that are listed at the end of the book of Philemon. If we're honest with ourselves, anytime we see names in the Bible, we have a tendency to discount. Scoot on right by, right? Well, we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to take some time to consider who these people were as we build in Scripture. Let's start by rereading verses 23 to 25, and then we'll look at each of these people individually. Verse 23. Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Now it's interesting to note, just by way of cursory observation here, each of the five individuals that we find referenced here at the conclusion of this letter are also mentioned at the conclusion of Colossians, particularly in Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. As we noted during our first study of Philemon. Colossians and Philemon were likely written in close proximity to one another. Colossians would have been written first since Onesimus is mentioned in Colossians, and Philemon is Onesimus taking this letter back to Philemon. But nevertheless, you have a close proximity of these two letters being written. It's also proof that at the time this letter was written, don't miss this, Very important observation in terms of our practical day-to-day life as Christians. At the time Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon residing in Roman imprisonment, he had several men, several godly brothers who were intentional in encouraging him during his time behind bars, as it were. And we need to do the same thing. Whether we have a brother and sister in Christ who gets thrown in prison for faithfulness to the gospel or say a brother and sister in Christ who lost a loved one or gets a hard health diagnosis or loses a job or whatever the trial or hardship may be, we as the church need to do our due diligence to surround those who are going through difficulties. We need to be those who encourage those going through trials and hardships, just as these faithful men did with Paul. These men were of doctrinal, missional, and relational like-mindedness with Paul. They loved him dearly, and he loved them enough to mention them here in this letter. So let's go through these now, one by one. Who were these people? Who were these five men that Paul references by way of conclusion? Well, the first individual that Paul mentions is Epaphras. Epaphras. Paul describes Epaphras as a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, which could not be referring to the fact that Epaphras was also in jail with Paul when he wrote this letter. Or it just could be the fact that, spiritually speaking, Epaphras was spiritually captured by Christ to do his will. He was his joyful prisoner, as it were, and we all are prisoners of the Lord. We are captive to a good master, Lord, and Savior from the moment we come to saving faith and on to eternity future. That's Epaphras. We know from Colossians 4.12-13 to 13 that Epaphras was also a man devoted to prayer, and he had a shepherd's heart for the spiritual well being of God's people. Some speculate that he may have even been a deacon or one of the leaders in the Colossian church. So, Epaphras here, clearly a godly man and somebody that Paul loved dearly. Second individual mentioned here at the conclusion of Philemon is Mark. This individual is none other than John Mark, who the majority of Bible scholars believe both now and throughout church history, that he was the gospel of Mark's author. So this Mark listed here, presumably, is the same guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. When we survey the book of Acts, we find that at one point, this is an interesting note, at one point, Mark deserts Paul in the middle of his first missionary journey. So Mark and Paul working together, they have a falling out. Mark deserts him. And as a result, Paul wants nothing to do with them for a season. He's like, man, this guy just left me behind. And what does Mark do? Well, he goes and he begins to build a relationship with the Apostle Peter. That's also mentioned in the book of Acts. It's also alluded to in 1 Peter five 5.13. Now, I think there's a significant spiritual point in Paul mentioning Mark at the end of Philemon. Think about this. The fact that Mark is being mentioned now, you have the the deserting or the falling away of Mark in his relationship with Paul in the book of Acts causes him to go and be mentored and discipled by the Apostle Peter. And then some years later, Paul writes Philemon, and Paul mentions Mark, which indicates that at some point between Mark abandoning him and coming under the tutelage of Peter, that Paul and Mark were reconciled. Now why does that matter? Why is that significant? It means that Paul had to put into practice exactly what he instructed Philemon to do in this letter. Paul is saying, in effect, Philemon, you've heard about what happened with me and Mark. We had an estranged relationship at one point, but now... We've been reconciled. We're brothers in Christ. That transgression has been washed in the blood of our Lord and Savior. Very important observation for us to make. I also believe, I truly believe this, Philemon would have read that immediately conviction. Man, this isn't just some head knowledge or ethereal counsel that Paul's giving to me. He's actually done what he's asking me to do. I should do the same. So, Epaphras, Mark, third individual now, is Aristarchus. Aristarchus, he's mentioned explicitly in several places in the book of Acts, as well as Colossians 4.11. You have Acts 19.29, Acts twenty four, Acts 27.2, and of course Colossians 4.11. So, Aristarchus is a figure that appears several times in the New Testament. He's identified as a Jewish believer, but he's presented as one of Paul's most loyal co-workers in gospel ministry. In fact, Aristarchus was with Paul when he was ambushed during a riot in Ephesus, and he was on the same ship that wrecked when Paul was on his way to Rome, as recorded in Acts 27. So Aristarchus and Paul had been through good times and bad. This was a guy who was Paul's ride or die, or I guess... Uh, sail or die, as it were. He experienced an ambush for faithfulness to the gospel, and he experienced a literal shipwreck in the middle of a sea by being Paul's co-laborer. According to extra-biblical tradition, Aristarchus was martyred by Nero shortly after Paul's first Roman imprisonment around the year 65 AD. So, If this was written close to 62 A.D., Aristarchus is only going to be around for a couple more years after this letter is written. And as we've been learning during our study of forerunners of the faith, to be a Christian in the first 300 years of church history typically led in martyrdom if you were any individual of significance. And if you weren't, you were going to face significant persecution for your faith. Even if you didn't have to die for your faith, you were going to have to suffer greatly. Aristarchus did so as well. That takes us now to individual number four. Individual number four is a man named Demas. There's been no shortage of spilled ink about this figure. We only see reference to Demas in the New Testament here, Colossians 4.14 and 2 Timothy four ten. 10. It's in 2 Timothy 4.10 when we find a sobering and really frightening passage for us to consider. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we find Demas, Paul, this is last letter I ever wrote. He says, Demas, having loved the world, deserted me for Thessalonica. Now, a lot of people believe that Demas just, um, you know, he, he had some, some difficulties at that point in, in, in facing the fact that Paul's about to be put to death, so he, he went to Thessalonica and and he just kind of wanted to take a break from the ministry, that's a view that's out there. I personally don't find that view persuasive. Anytime the New Testament uses or alludes to love for the world, it tends to indicate the manifestation of unbelief. Personally, in keeping with men like John MacArthur, I believe that Demas renounced his profession of faith and abandoned the ministry, not just for a season, but he entirely forsook his ministry to pursue a life of sin and pleasure. Paul's about to be executed, he had a close relationship with Paul. You better believe Demas and anybody that had a close relationship with Paul would have had to pay a price. 2 Timothy probably was written only about four, or five, maybe six years after the book of Philemon. Demas, very well... Although it's possible that he just kind of had a a season of backsliding, I think it's more likely that he fell away eventually. Think about how stunning this is to consider. You have a man who co-labored with the Apostle Paul. He saw firsthand all of the miracles that the Apostles performed. He witnessed the divine authority that the Apostles carried with them. He had so much exposure to truth. He sat under the greatest teaching in the history of Christianity. And yet, assuming that MacArthur and others are accurate, and I believe it to be true is based on the internal usage of the phrase loving the world, if this is an accurate interpretation, Demas turned his back on everything. It wasn't enough. He went to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if that's true, that's the correct interpretation, which I believe that it is personally, The is a frightening reminder that guys, ladies, listener, you can serve in the highest level of spiritual leadership in the local church. You can see incredible results in your ministry. You can have close friendships with the greatest teachers, preachers, and leaders in the church in your generation. You can do all the right things externally, and even so... In the final analysis, those actions are altogether futile if they do not proceed from a heart that truly loves God and truly desires to glorify Him. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.19, those who go out from us were never of us to begin with. You can play the Christian game for a very, very long time if you simply make it all about externals. Simply make it all about doing the right thing. But in due course, if you've not truly trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not been born again at some point, you will either burn out or you will be exposed for a a hypocritical expression of faith. That's what we find here in the case of Demas. That takes us to the fifth and final man. A little bit more of a positive note here. Uh, In regards to the men who are listed. Fifth and final man, reference at the end of Philemon, I think you guys all may have heard of him before. It's a man by the name of Luke. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and at least I'm persuaded, the author of the book of Hebrews, but that's a different conversation for a different time. Um, Luke was a Gentile doctor. He's also known for being a very meticulous historian. He loved to track the historical and archaeological facts and evidences of his day. We know from the book of Acts that Luke was Paul's main traveling companion, and he was one of his closest friends. In fact, based on the testimony of 2 Timothy 4.11, it was Luke and Luke alone who was with Paul in the weeks leading up to his execution. Luke was a godly man used mildly by God to accompany Paul. Just like these other men, even Demas up to this point, used by God to accompany Paul um, and to encourage him in the first Roman imprisonment. So we've looked at Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And you had better believe that in sending their greeting. When Paul says, hey, these men want to greet you, these men knew Philemon... And they stood in lockstep agreement with Paul that Philemon was to grant forgiveness and reconciliation to Onesimus when he returned to him with this letter. Christian forgiveness is rooted in Christian community. May we never forget that. And lastly, in a fitting Pauline conclusion, verse 25 Notice how the letter concludes with Paul's prayer for Philemon, his family, and those who were members of his local church. Listen, verse 25, Paul says, So simple and so sweet, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As MacArthur notes in his commentary on the book of Philemon, quote, Paul realizes that what he asks of Philemon in this letter is not possible in the flesh because the flesh seeks vengeance. Although Philemon could not forgive Onesimus in his own strength, he certainly could do so through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ working with his spirit. So Paul's closing prayer in the book of Philemon is that Philemon himself would show the same grace to Onesimus that Christ had first showed to him. Quote. And may that likewise be our prayer as we face divinely appointed opportunities to extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us, and have eagerly sought out our forgiveness as well. May we be those who seek forgiveness for those who are on us. And when others come to us asking for forgiveness, may we receive them back, accepting them as it were, as we would receive Paul. May we show the same grace to others that Christ has first shown to us. And that concludes tonight's lesson and our three-part series in the book of Philemon, it's at this time that I want us to transition, as we normally do, to a season of group discussion, time of group discussion based on what we've talked about tonight. You'll notice on the back of page two, we do have some discussion questions that I want us to review and delve into a little bit as a group. So I'll read question one to kick us off, and then I would love to hear your feedback. Hope that we have a good time of discussion on these questions. Question one, from your perspective, how does Paul's portrayal of partnership and ministry differ from what is often practiced in modern day Christianity? So based on what you've seen or heard about this idea of partnership or community or what have you, how is kind of the 21st century so-called Western Christianized version of that reality different, or how does it tend to be different than how Paul views it based on what we found here in Philemon? I believe that phrase,
2: like, partnership in ministry today can be used and is used in a lot more, like, broad like general mm-hmm. and, and, like, that kind of way. More than what he meant because, like, it says that it was not a superficial relationship, and mm-hmm. I think people tend to use it like as Christians, we're partners in ministry, mm-hmm. you know, just generally. But he meant like the kind of partnership that's like you do life together, yeah, you know? like, like you said, like you agree on all things, right? And like, even, even like personally, like what I've seen, it's we don't always agree on everything. Right. little like, on yeah. you still call other people partners right.
0: I think that partnership biblically speaking it goes beyond common salvation starts there does go beyond it to a certain extent um, there's a difference between like for example I'll make this very practical you can have a crusade, like a Billy Graham type style crusade and partner with Pentecostals, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Anglicans and every you know conceivable denomination out there that's Protestant, right? Okay, we we all acknowledge, insofar that we believe the true gospel, that sinners are only saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you believe that yeah, we're, we're co-heirs in Christ, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we can even do really mass-level evangelistic uh, outreaches and, and ministries, but when you really start getting into the bolts of local church ministry, discipleship, uh, things that are going to require close-quarter, intimate type of, of, of doing life together in the in the act of doing ministry, and in the, just the, the day-to-day living. If there's not a, again, a, a like, you know, basic level, a, a shared basic set of doctrinal convictions, you're going to have problems. Now, for some people, there's different levels of tolerance between, you know, what what can I tolerate uh, in terms of having some disagreements on non-essential matters? Because if you have disagreements on essential matters, that's the difference between Christianity and non-Christianity, right? But we're talking about secondary level issues. Like some people are going to be a little bit less bothered by somebody who believes in the gift of, you know, the, the continuation of the gift of tongues or the continuation of the gift of healing or the continuation of the gift of prophecy in the sense of a foretelling, like telling the future. Some people are going to be more bothered by that. Some people are going to be less bothered by that. Okay? I'll give you a perfect example. John MacArthur is going to be really bothered by people today who believe in the continuation of prophecy, tongues, and healing, right? Um, But a guy like Mark Dever, who who doesn't believe in the continuation of those gifts, he has no problem co-laboring with those who do. So there is some differences there um, in terms of some people have a different ability to tolerate differences than other people do. But when you do regard this idea of partnership and ministry that Paul in the New Testament is talking about, it starts with the gospel, but it's, it's more than the gospel. So for our context, you know, partners in ministry for us, true like in terms of like our day-to-day, week-to-week outreach at FBC Edna... Like I would say that, at least for me as a as a spiritual leader here, I would want to see general continuity on views of, um, you know, church government, views on um, how the Word of God should be preached, views on discipleship, views on outreach, like even how we go about outreach. Like there needs to be some continuity of views there. There's differences of opinion on, say, eschatology or um, certain aspects of of soteriology and um, different aspects, maybe even of um, ecclesiology. Like we can agree on congregationalism, which is what our church holds to, but how should congregationalism be fleshed out? You know, those are those are some conversations I think that um, that you could have some disagreements on and still co-labor together. But at the most fundamental level, for our local church, we're a Southern Baptist church, which means that more or less, if we're going to do real life-on-life, intimate uh, outreach and discipleship, and uh, or like conferences and things like that, we're probably going to want to see people who who are holding to doctrine and holding to ministry philosophies that are consistent with a Baptistic view on, on those things. So um, very good thoughts there, Hannah. So starts with the gospel, but probably, you know, you need to go a little bit further than that if we're talking about the same kind of partnership that Paul's getting after. Any other thoughts on that? This idea of how modern day Western Christianity views of of partnership or community differs from what Paul's talking about. Because today in some organizations, partnership, it's just, hey, you know, we, we both we both say we love Jesus and, and that's good enough. And that's good enough. Doesn't matter what we believe, we both love Jesus so we can partner together. My friends, that wouldn't have flown with Paul and Peter and the other apostles and, and leaders in those days. There was more there was more to it than, well, you know, we disagree on, on the identity of Jesus, and we disagree on even the means of salvation, the doctrine of justification. We disagree on that, but we can still partner together, you know? It's, it's just something that, that's something that would not have resonated with those men. am not saying you've got to agree on every jot and tittle of doctrine either, but I am saying there needs to be a, a pretty substantive amount of, of commonality in terms of what doctrine you're holding to. It could be a little bit different depending on the person, but Paul's talking about deep, intimate, um, and, and, and um, significant level of agreement that he has in his co-laborers. Anything else, guys? Any responses? Okay, number two. This should be a very straightforward, but I think it's an important question for us to consider. Why do you think it takes humility to extend forgiveness to other people?
2: We have to understand that we are not perfect but We have to understand that, um, that we have been forgiven before.
0: Yeah. Right? You know, the Pharisees, other than their heretical theology... See, a lot of people think the Pharisees... Guys, let me just make sure I'm clear on this... People say, yeah, the Pharisees, they, it, it wasn't their theology that was the problem. They were just, you know, they, they just weren't godly. You know, guys, the, the Pharisees were heretics. The Sadducees were heretics. They completely distorted the Old Testament law and the Old Testament word of God, and they, they put equal value on oral law and tradition and all these other things. Pharisees and Sadducees, they were heretical. So they had bad theology. But even further than that, what else was their problem? What Jesus talks about, they didn't extend any kind of mercy or forgiveness towards people that realized, "Hey, I'm really messed
2: up."
0: Right? You have situations where an adulterous woman would be around, and, and she wants to worship Jesus as God in human flesh, and she's willing to to acknowledge the identity of Christ more than the so called religious leaders were. And the religious leaders of that day say, "You know, that person's a sinner." What? World, is he doing hanging out with those people, right? Pharisees did not have the type of mindset, they did not have the humility to recognize that, hey, you know, we really have messed up. We're sinners. We have no merit before God. We have no basis to withhold forgiveness and to cast condemnation on other people. And as Wit just said, if you're going to truly forgive somebody, you, you just can't have a posture of, I've never, I've never done anything wrong. I, I, I'm, a, I'm just so righteous and I don't make mistakes. To truly be in a position intellectually and spiritually to forgive somebody, you got to first recognize your own need for forgiveness. This is why believers, as we talked about in previous lessons, only true believers can model the type of forgiveness that God holds us to, uh, holds us accountable to in His Word. Because to forgive as God calls us to do presupposes that you've received God's forgiveness, meaning you're a believer, and in doing so it presupposes that you have a right view of your own need for forgiveness. You don't have a high view of yourself. You have a very low view of yourself. You have a high view of the grace of God. So, very good. How does the world today view situations where people have offended you or wronged you, what do they say? They say forgive them, be reconciled, move forward in, in a positive and a revive and a new relationship. No, they say don't get mad, get even. One up them, right? I'll show you that's the way the world tells us to interact with those who promise. And what is the root cause of that mindset? It's pride, right? So the Word of God says you've got to be humble to forgive other people, you've got to first humble yourself, receive God's forgiveness for yourself, and then be in a position where you can extend that same forgiveness to other people. But the world, on the other hand, says, "Oh no, 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 no! If I'm going to get wrong, I'm going to get, I'm going to get even, and maybe I'm going to get even more than even this person. They're not getting my forgiveness. Oh yeah, I might give them kind of a cursory, oh yeah, yeah, I forgive you, I, I, I forgive you, and yeah, 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 I, I'll say that, but really, I'm, I'm going to." I'm going to get even with this guy or this girl. It's the way the world works. So, as Christians, we need to constantly saturate our minds with the gospel of God's free grace and forgiveness that He offers to us, needy and perishing sinners as we are. And when we saturate our minds with those truths, we're going to be in a position intellectually and emotionally to be quick and willing to forgive and reconcile those who wrong us. So, no matter if people transgress you, offend you, enter into an estranged relationship with you, at some point in your life, as I'm sure you all know from personal experience, somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to wrong you. Somebody's going to transgress you. It's going to happen. It's not a matter if, but when. And when it does happen, you need to make sure you are prepared for that moment when they do mess up and they do come back to you to be reconciled, that you truly extend Forgiveness and you truly enter into that reconciled, revived, and renewed relationship. You don't just say, Oh, well, yeah, I forgive you, but you're tense and cold and you want nothing to do with them ever again. That's not what we were called to do. It's not what we just learned from Philema tonight. Any other thoughts on number two? Okay, number three. Question three. Based on Paul's confidence in Philemon being obedient to the instruction contained in this letter, why do you think he still refers to biblical accountability structures at various points? So, why, you know, why didn't Paul just say, Philemon, I'm confident in you. In you. I know you're a godly man. I know you're going to do the right thing. And then, uh, yeah, you're good to go. Why, why didn't he continue? Remember, very subtly, but why did he continue to put in the letter, hey, by the way... You know, I'm writing it to all these people in your church, which means I want this to be read. And, oh, by the way, I want you to prepare my guest room because I'm going to come visit you. And, oh, by the way, uh, you remember Epaphras and Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. You know those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, they send their greeting with me to you. So, yeah, I've told them about what's going on at your church. Why do you think there's these continual allusions and references to accountability structures, if Paul has confidence in Philemon to forgive and be reconciled with their because Paul knows that uh, Philemon has
2: human nature and that these things so.
0: That's right. It's exactly right, my friends. The best of men are men at best, or the women. Uh, <laughs> the best of women are women at best. Um, we are frail. We are fickle. We struggle sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle a lot with taking the simple, straightforward instruction in Scripture and applying it to our lives. Sometimes the most easy and straightforward instruction in Scripture is the hardest to apply because we're proud, because it can be painful and difficult to repent and obey in the way God calls us to do so, even though it's for our spiritual good, even though it comes from a loving and gracious Father in Heaven, it can be hard because of our sinful nature to obey what God calls us to do in His Word. Paul knows that, as Whit just mentioned. Paul knows that. So if he's going to just say, okay, like brother, I love you, I'm confident in you, just remember though, there's also accountability do the right thing. Did the biblical thing. The god only thing. Any other thoughts on that? Very good perspective there, Whip. Okay. Very good. Number four. I know you guys are getting tired. We've had a long evening, but I hope it's been fruitful. Number four. And I hope to hear from hopefully all of y'all, or most of y'all, but after completing our study, this three-part study for the Book of Philemon, what are the major takeaways that you gain from this New Testament letter? What are you going to take from here? What have you learned? You know, remember, think, think back three weeks ago. Well, two weeks ago, it's third session. You get the point. Think back to the very first night we started this study, right? And I asked you guys, how many of you guys have read the book of Philemon? And only a couple hands. Uh, went in the air. And then I said, how many of you guys think you could even give a a straightforward, easy summary of the book? What's it about? What's the purpose of the book? Nobody raised their hand. I think Alan may have raised his hand, but nobody else raised their hand. Um, Now we've studied it very in depth. Most guys preach this in one sermon. We've spent three and each sermon's gone about 50 minutes, give or take, plus discussion afterwards. So what have you gained from our labors here? Spending probably cumulatively about three hours in this, just in formal teaching time. What are you guys gonna take from
2: it? I think, go <laughs> I feel like the biggest thing I've taken away is not to be prideful. Mm. And when you're forgiving someone,
0: you have to Yeah. Not to be prideful.
2: And to be prayerful about it and careful. Yeah.
0: That's very good. Um, you know, there's a passage where it says, uh, God resists the proud that gives favor to the humble. Um, I believe that's in James. Uh, let me go and check real quick. I've got the scripture reference in my mind, but I'm OCD about making sure that I get it right for you guys and for the listener. So let me check. Um, let me check here yep James 4.6 God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble and this is cited also in Psalm 138.6 and Proverbs 3.34 so he's quoting from the Old Testament there and when we think about pride versus humility. Think about God. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's sovereign. He's Lord of all, right? Do you really want Him opposed to you? Who in their right mind would, right? Well, if you're proud as a habitual pattern of your life, that immovable, eternal, all-powerful, and infinite being is going to oppose you. And if you're His children... He's going to discipline you or he's going to proactively humble you. That right there should cause us to take a step back and say, whoa, I better humble myself. I better keep myself humble. Guys, you're going to struggle with pride every day of your life because it's natural for sinners to be proud beings. Pride is the root of all sin. So it's not a matter if you're going to struggle with pride. It's When and to what degree. But here's the key. When you recognize pride creeping up in your life. Preaching to myself here too. When you recognize pride rearing its ugly head. Go to the gospel. Because it's at the cross where all pride is washed away in the blood of Christ. When you think about what Jesus had to do for proud people like you and me. And that while we were yet sinners he died for us. That crushes pride. Crushes it all the way to power. Very good, Allie. I appreciate you sharing that. The need to be humble is so important, especially when dealing with forgiveness and reconciliation. If I could say it like this, just really quickly, proud people are unforgiving people. If you you do not forgive and reconcile those who have sought it out with you, you are a proud person. No matter any claims to the contrary, you are a proud person. That's not dude. That's the word of God saying that. It's not my opinion. That's God's opinion. Any other takeaways? So pride, good joke.
2: Um, It's giving me a better picture of what it's supposed to look like as a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't just say hi to each other whenever you see each other And church. Mm-hmm. You're really glad you're supposed to be at And you do life together because that's what it is to Amen.
0: Amen. We talked about that really. We touched on tonight, of course, but first lesson, I think we really belabored that point. Um, like Paul knew these people, right? Like he, he knew them. Those guys that were with him while he was in prison, they were right there with him. Even while he was in prison, Paul, what do we need to do for you, brother? How can we pray for you? How can we encourage you? How can we minister here as you want us to? And that's what we should be. We should be the same way. And as we talked about in the very first lesson, if you're part of a church that's not doing that, then you need to do everything you can to change it. And if, if it's a situation where you've been there for a long time and it's not changing, you've brought up the spiritual leadership and they're not willing to take the necessary steps to change the culture of a church to making it intimate and personal and welcoming, then you need to prayerfully consider finding a new church. So, very good feedback here, John. Anna? So, I feel like I can actually agree with those,
2: but I think, like, I mean, this is something that everybody can relate to, because as Christians, we all receive forgiveness, mm-hmm. and it's something we have to put into practice all the time, but I think, like, depending on who you forgive and, like, for what, you can, your heart can be really hardened for because of pride, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, I can just say personally, hearing, like, the background of it and understanding the relationship between Paul and Philemon, like, it it really helps me to understand it a lot better Mm -hmm. and not want to just push it away. Like, I don't want to be told what to do. You don't know anything Mm -hmm. about me. But, like, this can be applied to all the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it... All is like to the gospel. Yeah, and that's that's why really it for me. Yeah.
0: So that's really good. You know, I'll, I'll share a little personal story uh, about that. For me, one of the one of the things that sometimes really irks me is when uh, is when I is when I have a thought or I, I say something, and immediately I'll, I'll think, you know, or I'll hear somebody remind me of it gospel principle, and you kind of just like, God, man, why, why are you telling me this? Why can't I just be upset? Why can't I just wallow around in my own self-pity or my own frustration? But it's what you need to hear. And because I'm a proud man as we all are, we all struggle with pride, you're like, oh man, I know that. It's so basic and I don't need you telling me that, but it's so true. I need to humble myself and I need to receive it. I need to make the change. And I think we all, if we're honest, that Some of the times, like, something so easy as the gospel or being reminded, hey, brother, hey, sister, remember this truth, even though you're struggling, yes, I understand it's a rough situation you're going through or a painful situation you're going through, remember these truths, and though in our pride we might kind of bristle back initially maybe, the Holy Spirit reminds us and softens us to, wait a second, no, it's right, it's true, I need need to receive that, I need to submit to it, so... Even your youth pastor struggles with doing that. Believe it or not. <laughs> um, so yeah. Any other any other thoughts, though? This, this is bad. good. Yes, sir.
1: You know, if someone cheats you, you know, on a worldly, I mean, monetarily, or misleads you on something, and uh, you know, if in this situation, you know, Paul was writing a letter. Because I'm sure Onesimus felt like that Philemon wouldn't wouldn't have hurt him, right. or wouldn't have known him, and so he's he's, he's trying to get Paul to say, "Look, this is this is who Philemon is now. This is who uh, Onesimus is now." Mm-hmm. But you know, in worldly things, you know, if you have somebody that claims to be a brother and they've cheated you, you know, there's instruction in the Word of God about how to deal with that. And that's not, you don't sue them. You don't take them to court. You know, you don't act like a worldly. I mean, you you go to them and you you uh, speak with them. And if they want to reconcile, that's fine. But if not, you forgive. And you you go on. And, and you, you let God you let God handle that because I think one of the things that happens in the church is, is that, that we, we try to look at the world to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ just like that. Well, if you've taken money from me, or if you you damage my car, then I have the right to sue you. That's and that's true. not right. I mean, it's a uh, it's not right because you know here Onesimus owed Philemon, but Paul is reminding him, saying, if he owes you anything, just put it to my charge. They put it to my debt. You know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll owe you, and, and we'll, I'll settle up when I get there. Right. right. But he was trying to remind him, he was like, look, don't forget what I've done for you. I'm not saying anything, mm-hmm. but, so what I'm saying is, is that to be, you know, willing to forgive, not willing, forgive, right. I mean, you have to, and move on past it even if somebody wrongs you. Yeah. When we first moved in that house over there, we found all kind of problems, and uh, it was evident that was evident to us that it was hidden, mm-hmm. but the people said it wasn't hidden, that they, they didn't hide, they didn't, they didn't purposely hide this stuff, and so it came down to, were we going to sue and hurt innocent people, you know, in order to get it, to get it back, or, or trust that, okay, that's between them and God, and if they're lying about it. But we're going to do what's right. And that's, that's yes, what you we had to do. We, and God blessed us and took care of it. Mm-hmm. And another thing I got from it is uh, Demas. I didn't realize who he was. But you can have somebody that is good enough to convince Paul mm-hmm. that he's a brother. And then you've got to fall away. So you know, don't think just because you have somebody in the church and they know all the words and they know the game. And that's why you always have to, you know, keep each other in check. Yep. You know, Absolutely. So, anyway. No, very good. And it's uh, a reminder
0: of demons especially it's God's grace and God's grace alone that preserves us, enables us to endure and, uh, and and bear fruit. Not just a profession of faith, but possessing it and enduring in that faith till Christ returns and calls us home. So good point there. I'll just share my takeaway. Um far as something I didn't even really realize until I started studying the letter, uh, read it several times just as a, as a believer and everything, but first time I ever did a real deep dive into it, background and, and the verse-by-verse verse exposition of the text, and to, to know the story of Paul and Mark, okay, major falling out between him and and Paul and Mark and Barnabas was involved and there was a and there was a separation Luke so Luke went with Paul uh, Barnabas and Mark wound up you know going together eventually Mark got with Peter and he grew a lot and Peter was able to to disciple and mentor Mark and as we see here years later there was a reconciliation between Paul and Mark so for me when Paul mentions Mark this really hit home like Paul is he is, t- he is showing Philemon, who would have known knowing Paul closely and as, as close to it as the church was at that point in history, knowing everything that happened, and Philemon would have seen that and said, What I am getting from Paul, he put into practice for himself. And I think as a pastor for me, I want to be the kind of man that puts into practice what I teach you and what I teach anybody that I have the opportunity to teach, whether it's here or anywhere else. I don't want to be a guy who just knows not knows truth and, and knows um, you know theoretical ways in which we can apply that truth to our lives and ministries. You no, know, I want to have lived it myself. Paul lived it himself. And same goes for y'all. As y'all grow in your knowledge, as y'all grow in your familiarity with scripture. Be somebody who has lived it out in your life. Don't just be somebody who can who can give it out to somebody verbally. I mean, certainly we need to be able to do that. We need to be able to understand the Word and we need to be able to instruct people on how it should apply in our lives. But man, when you've lived it out for yourself, that is when it takes a whole nother level in the people you're sharing it with and it will take a whole nother level in your heart as a believer. So, any other thoughts on... Finally even before we close in prayer and officially
2: wrap up our series. I think the reconciliation part of it is a big deal because like sometimes speaking from like personal experience, if you forgive someone, you you kinda there's like that that tension you talked about, that cold kind of tension. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that it should it should make your relationship better with forgiveness, I think that's something that we all need to improve on. Absolutely.
0: You know, you don't People say forgive and forget. You know, you're never going to forget. It's impossible. You can't forget. You can't take that out of your mind. You know, even God. God. God remembered. He knows and remembers everything about us. He just doesn't hold the sin against us, right? There's true reconciliation for the believer. Same with us. We're never going to forget, but we certainly forgive and reconcile. When you have, when you commit to forgiving somebody who has come to you to be uh, reconciled, to renew the relationship. You are making a commitment to them, and if they're a believer, they're making a commitment to you. We are going to get this relationship not only back to where it was before. We're going to move forward as brothers or as sisters in Christ, and we're going to be stronger than ever as a result of it. Um, worldly forgiveness is just a service level. Yeah, 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 we're good, but really I'm holding a grudge, and I'm never going to treat you the same. The relationship's never going to be the same biblical forgiveness is, yeah, you know what? This person, or myself, has caused some real harm in the relationship, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of all wrongs, and we're going to get back to where we were, and we're going to go forward, and the years to come will be even stronger on the other side. Yeah, that's biblical forgiveness and reconciliation. Very good thought of it. Let's close in prayer. I really am so thankful to have been able to teach this letter to you guys. I'm grateful that you all have committed to coming on Thursday nights. Lord willing, we'll be back on Wednesdays uh, in, in, in the near future. So looking forward to getting back on a regular routine. But to you guys and to the listener, thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to teach this letter to you guys. I hope it's a blessing. It's a huge blessing for me. Let's pray, and uh, we'll enjoy some time of fellowship until you'll have to go. Heavenly Father, Lord, our study of Philemon has challenged us to examine ourselves so that we might determine whether or not we are consistently modeling Christ-like forgiveness towards other people. And Father, we're grateful that over the past three weeks we've learned about the content and application of Christian forgiveness. And we thank you that you've given us your word so clearly. And Lord, your word is so straightforward in its instruction and it's In its application to our lives, we thank you for how you've gone to such great lengths to reveal yourself to us in your word. And Lord, even a book as small as Philemon is still filled with precious insights for us to take to heart. And Father, we pray that after studying this book, we ask you would enable our lives to be molded by all that the Holy Spirit led Paul to write some 2,000 years ago. Father, it's our prayer that we would be faithful to meditate on the principles of forgiveness we've learned over our study of Philemon. God, that as you provide us with opportunities to apply these truths in our lives, we ask that we would be attentive and intentional in modeling them. And God, as we we leave this place, we ask that our local church, the community of faith that we are members of, we ask that it would be characterized by Christ-like forgiveness and that widespread, uh, widespread reconciliation and repentance and healing would take place where needed, especially in the midst of the difficult season that we're in. And Lord, may it all be for the magnification of Your great name, for the eternal good of Your people, as we seek to not only be hearers of Your Word, but doers, joyfully obeying what You've commanded us from the heart. We love You, God, we give You thanks again for this study. We ask for your blessing on the rest of this week as we leave this place in this time of worship, praying in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.